podcast from Crew and Mike is, I think it's really cool and um, that is what I wanted to say. Two and a mic. First of all, my apologies for not having uploaded a podcast in a more regular time frame. I will try to make up for it over the holiday period. No promises, however. Constitutional power. Who rules and who sits in the background pulling the strings? Does this seem like a modern-day political question? It's not very original, actually. In the 18th century, the Pelamites, the Carteret Group and George II and his dad had been struggling for years over supremacy, over British interests. And in the case of the king, his Habsburg overseas interests above his British responsibilities. Today we talk about the prime ministerial reigns of both Spencer Compton and Henry Pelham. It wasn't all rosy in Georgian times. What else to expect? Some more colourful language than normal, but then again, What's normal nowadays? Thanks, Aidan, for your incredibly illuminating take on such a dark period in British history. And it will only get darker as we move forward. But for now, we jump back to 1742, and a little earlier, even. Enjoy. I'm joined, surprisingly, by Aidan, my um, yeah, co-conspirator, Partner in crime. Yeah, baby. Yeah, yeah. The guy who has that, uh, yeah, what can I say? The American style analysis <laughs> to, to to politics. This sort of larger than life voice. Yeah. Yeah, baby. America, man. <laughs> God, you're almost like a Marvel hero there. Yeah, um, baby. <laughs> Okay, so that means we're going to have to get you a cape of some description for the next show. But uh, I've got one upstairs. Know. Don't worry. Yeah, cool. Yep. You're so well prepared, yep. Aiden. I'm a, in my free time, I uh, cosplay as America, man. <laughs> Good to know. All right, I'm gonna have to have a word with uh, with Tracy about that one. Um, <laughs> cool. Too. All right. So uh, yeah. So today we're doing what I've considered calling uh, for this podcast a tale of two PMs because um, like that. Well, the clues in the name. Yeah. Uh, there are two PMs uh, yeah. under discussion. Um, yeah. So. Number is it PM number two, Spencer Compton, reigned until his death from 1742 to 1743. He was the first prime minister to die in office. Uh, but having said that, he's only prime minister number two, so therefore that's no big deal. Um, <laughs> uh, but what's quite funny is that he's, okay, funny. He's then followed by Henry Pelham, um, who also died while in office, but that was uh, considerably later. So yeah. from 1743 to 1754. He has a pretty, yeah. like, Pelham's reign is pretty lengthy. And, I mean, with Warpole, I mean, he's the direct follow-up for Warpole at this point, too. So it, that was a really fun, like, 
seeing how often Warpole's name came back up afterward and how pivotal he is, you know, I thought that was really interesting. Actually, yeah. Um, also, because both of these characters actually participated or were members of uh, the Walpole government. Um, and so therefore, Walpole's influence was continued um, even after his death with uh, Pelham's uh, reign as PM. Mm. And all three of them were Whigs um, anyway. So yeah. this sort of the domination of the Whig party continued uh, through these two gentlemen. Um, yeah, so Spencer Compton, he, yeah, he wasn't in office too long. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit, let's, a little bit about his life. Yeah. So basically he yeah. himself, um, he came from a family that were all, uh, from what I've read described as high Tories, but apparently he had a fight with his brother, poor, poor Spencer. And so he thought sort of guys, um, I'm going off to the Whigs. And yeah. so he became a prominent Whig and a close uh, associate of Walpole's for many, many years thereafter. Yeah. He said it as an MP in the eye of uh, Suffolk? Suffolk? Suff Suffolk. Suffolk? Cool. Yeah. Mm. I Half the time I'm reading these names, I'm like, I'm going to have to ask how to pronounce this because <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to make a fool of myself. So he's from uh, in the eye of Suffolk. Um, from 1698 to 1710, and various other Sussex seats from 1713 to 1728. Um, I thought it was interesting about his birth that I couldn't find a day for his birth. I only got a range, like, between, um, yeah, between 16... 73 and 1674 i never found like an exact date for when he was born and i thought that that was also really interesting i mean this is we're in a time period now where like documentation is kind of a thing like I mean, we've been doing it for a bit too so like i just think that it's really weird that we don't know a lot about this guy like he's still kind of a mystery guy even though he was prime minister he'd been in power in multiple positions for quite some time like I think that that's really interesting. Honestly, I thought it was weird. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I mean, we can never say so many years after the event as to whether or not this was um, a, a deliberate sort of a misplacement of the documents. Um, True. Yeah, as in they thereafter, um, you know, perhaps there was some some reason why they I don't know if there was some kind of age related uh, responsibility. And they said, no, no, hide that. And then we can say that he's this old and you can do this and that. Who knows what these people used to get up to? But um, yeah, yeah, that's it, uh, it's a weird one. I just thought that that was like there were a few things when I was doing my research that I couldn't come up with information on or like when i did i had to do like we did with warpole that extra digging that i was just like why did i have to do this like why am i having to do this um i found myself in a similar spot with some of the research i did here again and i thought that was at least worth noting you know yeah i think there are going to be lots and lots of things where we're going to go off on some tangents i mean even here um there there are some sort of side issues going on which we're probably going to talk about i mean for a start, because as you've kind of also mentioned, there's not really too much to talk about under Compton's reign as prime minister because it was so short and then he died. Um, but I mean, there are a few things going on that we can, we will talk about, of course. Um, but what's really interesting to to mention as a side sort of plot, 
when I came to, and uh, I'm interested in hearing your take on this as well. So when I now come to do research on either the prime ministers or also the US presidents, what I'm also looking at is international affairs or events which may in some way be connected. Yeah. So the way that I've always kind of looked at history through the history lessons that I had at school and college were very much two dimensional. It's like this is this is an event. You study this event and you study it from the perspective of these people. And and that's basically it. Um, but we all know that's not the case because, I mean, you know, 300 years ago, whenever these events were taking place, they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have mobile telephone you know, possibilities that they can. Hey, dude, we've just been attacked by. Yeah. You know, I don't know what. What should we do? So basically, um, a lot of these sort of captains or um, you know, sort of army generals or colonels or lieutenants were basically given. Uh, you know, a letter or a brief and saying this is your responsibility you go and take that hill and yeah. uh, how you take it i couldn't care less you know yeah. um and so basically these people were essentially lost for months and months and months or years even in some cases um and you know news would filter back eventually that this person has done that and that person has done this and and essentially the role of government was simply to be able to coordinate as best they could yeah um what happened so um even though at the time of Compton, we can't say for sure that so much was accomplished by him, uh, there are certain issues happening around that time which are quite interesting. And one of those things that I picked up of in 1742, which was basically around the time when Compton came in, the British government extended the rights of the East India Company to continue managing trade until 1783 in their area yeah wow okay and for that certification let's use that word they gave the british government a loan a loan they didn't even donate they gave them a loan of one million pounds so that the british government could continue financing its own war effort in europe wow Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. So from 1742 until 80, 1783, uh, this permission was extended towards the East India Company. So therefore, you know, we don't hear too much about them under Compton. But as you and I know, we're going to hear a lot more about the East India Company as we go through other prime ministers. Yeah. Wow. I didn't I did not know that bit about the East India Trading Company. I'm so glad that you like the places where i don't do that extra bit of research it feels like you're always on top of it so i appreciate you doing that like but that's just wild man jesus christ that's I mean, it's a loan though that's what, yeah. that's what gets to me yeah i mean talk about screwing the government yeah it's like we'll give you the money but you've got to give us permission for the next 41 years to have a monopoly on trade to this area oh by the way it's just a loan so you're going to pay us back with interest yeah so basically yeah what uh, how is that even remotely a good deal for the government? Yeah. And meanwhile, the government's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and but, just like um, the amount of like terror and destruction that that company is going to cause over the next like several decades. Like, holy crap. Yeah. Wow. Well, at least I think until the 1830s, 1840s, when they're sort of finally sort of put out of commission or they are dis disassembled or whatever. But 
Um, yeah, exactly. And because yeah. there's a lot to follow, but you know, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that a little bit under Henry Pelham as well, because again, some more sort of side stories have developed under him. But that's you know, before we get there, we've still got the um, you know, Mister Mister Compton. So yeah, um, yeah, you've done a bit of background as well on him. He, what kind of a person did you kind of find him as being? Um, not really anybody who really stood out a whole lot. Somebody who kind of, um, like he kind of just hung out in the back. Like there were a lot of times when he was not the primary choice for the things that were being like that were going on. I mean, he really got close with, um, the prince for some time and, it did lead to like some rivalry between him and Warpole <clears throat> because Warpole was wanting to make like the prince the king, and then the king was like uh uh or something along those lines, and then Warpole ended up backing back to the king and having loyalty towards the king, but um Compton was loyal to the prince of Wales the whole time, and so when the king George the first died and George II took off or like took reign it was like Warpole was like he was pretty open about his dislike for Warpole he was like he was pretty open about wanting to replace Warpole with Compton um but Compton never really made himself he never really wanted to be in that position he kind of talked about not wanting to be in that position he said that he wasn't really fit for that position um and Warpole was also doing like a decent enough job that it wasn't necessary to get him out of there immediately. So like Compton just kind of sat in the back for most of the time up until Warpole is gone. And then he comes in. Um, and even then, during that time, he's not really doing a lot. You know, he didn't really do a lot. He seemed very like, I'm just kind of here kind of thing, you know, and I thought that was. I don't know. I, I guess that makes sense why we can't really find a lot about the guy, you know? Yeah, I think there's um, you know, our, our research appears to have sort of you know come together in, in, in similar fashion there. So, you know, Walpole was definitely more um, amenable to the king, uh, Compton to the prince, as you say. And so therefore, everybody was pretty sure there's a lot of rumor going around at the time in Westminster that, you know, when the king eventually did kick the royal bucket, um, that um, Compton would probably be then put into power. However, when the king did pass on and his uh, his son, the prince, became king, apparently they went to to meet uh, the three of them, uh, George II, Walpole and Compton. Um, and uh, as you said, Compton pretty much said, I'm not up to the task, which is really, really strange um, yeah. under these conditions. Um, in... Between 1715 and 1727, he was the Speaker of the House, and he's been, um, he has a reputation of being quite chilled. And apparently when somebody, an MP complained about being interrupted, um, and, and this happens a lot nowadays. Oh yeah? my God, I had that quote. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do yeah. you want to read it out? Oh, I'd, I'd rather you let it out because I don't think I, uh, <laughs> I don't think I wrote the whole quote. It was a good one, though. Okay, yeah, so he said, um, so somebody complained that he didn't want to be interrupted. And so, um, yeah, the Speaker of the House turned around and said, no, sir, you have a right to speak, but the House have a right to judge whether they will hear you. Yep. Um, I thought that yeah. was, I, I like clapped. I was like, that's fucking oh, good. 
god damn that's <laughs> fucking awesome like god that like ugh, i kind of wish that uh like that shit happened a little bit more often in like american politics like i see uh like the way that it goes in parliament and like the way that they just like yell at each other like pms just yell at each other and mps yell at each other like it is like in different like countries the way that they all have this conversation they're like passionate man they're like yelling at one another that doesn't really happen in american politics it feels like at least like in congress in the senate it's not usually this like well fuck you man and then like somebody's like hey everybody chill 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 man like we gotta take a break like it's usually like this all right you have a minute to speak about this thing and then we'll have you do like a rebuttal and then you can come back with another and it's just like i kind of like that it's this passion you know it's this fiery passion of just like fuck you man and i love it i love it i want to see more of that in american politics of just like i would like congress to be like 200 plus people just being like fuck you man it'd be so cool it'd be dope as hell i would watch congress live every day if that was the case you know like i think it would make american politics so much more interesting make it make it like that please Fair enough. I mean, you're always, uh, I suppose, welcome to watch, um, you know, par- parliaments or, you know, prime minister's questions. I mean, the thing is, with uh, with regards to how things are in the Commons, and maybe this all started because, you know, Compton here didn't have the balls to tell the sorry, sorry, guys, listen to please whoever's speaking. But I mean, nowadays, a lot of people find it very hard to um, to follow uh, the prime minister's questions, especially because, you know, most of the questions uh, which come to the prime minister from the the prime minister's own party are those which are very easy for the pm to sort of bat away um and then the opposition are given sort of limited amounts of questions um and most of the time the pm doesn't even answer the questions that are given and then when the opposition sort of mps stand up to say something they're like booed out by the um you know the uh uh, the, the majority that is presented by the government. And it does seem to be a bit, it's almost childish. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I understand what you say about passion, but what we get in the commons isn't really about passion. It's just, you know, people just, especially men, um, just being really, really, I don't know, what's the best way? Just yeah, just stupid. Yeah, no, I, I think I understand what you mean. And that does put it in a different perspective for me that I do... Um, kind of appreciate the organization on on our side a little bit more but i can see it as being like that childishness and like especially with it being mostly men like and not like i'm excited to continue to see more women and more diverse groups taking power in places and letting those conversations kind of change and not be so male dominated um like white male dominated especially um at least in the u.s but I think that that's just that's a good perspective. I appreciate that. No, no, no problem. It's just, it's just no particular talent on my part. It's just having seen the um, you know, so many PMQs, and you know there are certain circumstances where you, you're looking at you know this this TV screen and you're hoping that the the politicians that lead the country are going to give you some kind of like real detailed insight. You're going to watch with. Um, with the hope of actually identifying with whatever it is that they have to say. And you're then confronted by I don't know, 45 minutes or whatever of absolute crap. Um, and it's extremely disappointing and disheartening because you think, well, 
I thought I'd elected professional adults here, and yeah. uh, in fact, I nope. haven't done anything of the sort. So, yeah, okay. But as you also said earlier, then, so with regards to Compton, he's uh, one quotation which I didn't find out who it was, but uh, they said he is a a plodding heavy fellow with great application but no talents. Yeah. So, I yeah I I think the the quote continues with his only talent was holding high office, like. And That's not bad, is it? <laughs> yeah, it's not bad, but like it does speak to a point, you know. Like it's like, okay, so the only power that you have over me is that you're in a higher office than me, and if I'm like better than you, then I can reach that office, you know. Like I feel like that's that was pretty telling about Compton, like that. He's just kind of there, like somebody who's there, right place, right time kind of thing. Like we've talked about that before, um, like lucky spawn point kind of thing, you know. Um, so I it think also, that's really interesting. Yeah, it all, just want to say, thinking about it while you were talking there, because it also kind of suggests that people thought either this guy must be hiding something. Yeah, because he's got access to all this power. He's he's chums with the prince. Mm-hmm. Um, Walpole keeps on giving him more position and rank. So he went from Knight of the Bath to Baron Wilmington and then Viscount Pevensey and Earl of Wilmington. Yeah. yeah. So as in, you know, he continues to sort of rise up the scale of, of honors, as it were, and privileges. Yeah. Um, he's given these powerful jobs. Um, so some people probably look at him and think, well, mate, there must be something about this guy. Yeah, yeah. maybe he's, uh, yeah, what's the question of what still waters run deep and maybe there's something, boom, it's going to explode and he's going to be this fantastic political genius we've not really discovered up until now. Yeah. Who can say? Yeah, I mean, like with him, like kind of getting all these like privileges, like being knighted and whatnot, like some of the reading that I did, it seemed like, I was kind of confused because they kept saying that Compton was giving these positions or not Compton, that Warpole was giving these positions to Compton to kind of prevent him from becoming prime minister. And I didn't really understand what him being knighted and having all those things would prevent him from being prime minister. Would it be like too many duties for him to take care of that he just wouldn't have time to be prime minister or... Like, I don't know, I was just kind of kind of confused, like, as to how that would have prevented him, because it was just like, now you're knighted with the highest honor in all of Britain. Like, that is something that, I, like, for the most loyal and, like, people of the crown, like, I feel like that's only telling of you that you can be trusted and that you could fill that role of prime minister. But the way that I read it was... And the way that some people were talking about it was as if comp or that as if Warpole was trying to prevent him from getting into that prime minister position with those like getting him into those positions. Um, do you know anything about that? Like, what's up with that? I read the similar things as, as you did. So therefore, uh, I kind of thought, yeah, he's being kept sweet here. Yeah. Yeah. He's and if. If maybe Walpole was good at reading people, yeah, because we talked about how great he was at basically, you know, um, getting favors for friends, and at the same time, he was a good communicator with uh, yeah. the different parts of Parliament. Then maybe that's because he was a good reader, and so he could see, looking into Compton's eyes, that okay, you're ambitious, but you're not that ambitious, and so therefore, ah. if he was gi- if he was given positions 
there you go. There's always this little step up, but I know you don't want the big man seat. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, that's the way I read it. What's also interesting is that uh, at the time, so there's something called, we've already talked a bit about party splits and people are not really too happy with uh, Walpole because um, also with regards to the South Sea bubble, he, he, he made money, lots of other people didn't. Um, there's corruption going on. People think he's been stealing from the uh, the government purse. So the Patriot Whigs come in and more and more uh, Compton is quite chummy with these guys, but he toes the parliament line. So he's yeah, he's friends with these guys. He agrees with them. Um, he uh, he follows, you know, the kinds of things that they're saying, but he doesn't step out of line with Walpole. So therefore he keeps his position. Yeah. This kind of t- suggests to me that Walpole, I think he knows about all. There's no way Walpole doesn't know. He's got spies, I'm sure. I haven't read it anywhere, yeah. but I'm sure he's got spies in the Patriot Whigs. So they all know that Compton is there. But Compton, um, I think because he doesn't come out and challenge Walpole, Walpole knows, OK, this guy, he doesn't have the nads for it. Yeah. You know? And so th- that's where he kind of has a read on him. Yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah. And, like, just kind of relating to the spy thing with Warpole, like, his, I think it's the Norfolk Congress. Um, there there was a lot that I couldn't find about that. Um, but it led me to having a lot of questions, and it does kind of have me back up that statement of, like, there's no way that Warpole didn't know about all this stuff on the inside, like, he had to have had spies of some kind or like insiders who gave him information about anything that was going on in the Whig party. I'm sure that he even had people on the inside on the Tories. Like he must have had an in like everywhere, you know? And like when we talk about Pelham, we'll talk more about the Norfolk Congress just because he's way more involved with it. Like Compton never goes into norfolk congress if i'm not mistaken i mean he's not involved in the more intimate policy making like conversation that warpole and pelham and newcastle all are involved with um that really do end up shape the country in in a lot of ways um but yeah i thought i i definitely can back up that that statement of like he's he had to have had spies he had to have insider information like He's so skeezy, you know, he's so like, I don't know, corrupt criminal guy, you know. Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, as we kind of suggested before, you know, his his banker told him, hey, mate, pull out. Yeah. So as in, he's got his finger in a, fingers in a lot of pies. Yeah. Uh, so it's not exactly too big a stretch uh, to think that uh, he, he also knows what's going on here and there and everywhere. And I think that's just par for the course. Basically, You don't get to be prime minister for 21 bloody years if you don't know what the hell you're doing. And so, <laughs> No kidding. It's such a long time. Like, I feel like that's something that I should have just like written down and like highlighted and underlined multiple times. Like, just that reign is long. Like, I mean, it's not a reign, but like that that control of power. It's almost a reign. It's yeah, almost a reign, isn't it's it? It's so long. Like that 21 years. Like, I mean, um, FDR almost had three. I mean, I think he had three terms, almost went in for a fourth. <clears throat> but even that's only 12 years. You know, like we've we don't really have like 
some oh wait nope actually can immediately take that back we have uh, the supreme court we have people who sit on there for a long long time never mind so i was gonna say that we don't really have something like that here in america but we absolutely do like and i mean so many of these congress members and senators are people who have been there for so long you know like bernie sanders has been there for like two three decades now like he's been around for a long time so mm. they're but, no, but never the top job yeah, but never like that top job of like you're doing all of this shit and like you're still having quite a bit of power too. Like in all these positions that like the only one that's comparable in my mind is the Supreme Court, but that one's like nine people and the powers are like kind of divided, you know. Um, but that's just such a long time. Holy crap. Yeah, I can't even imagine um, any kind of responsibility for that period of time. And yet, you know, no. there, there, there it is. Um, so going back to, to Compton, it's funny, though, isn't it? I mean, there's not much about it, but we've kind of pieced certain bits and pieces together from here and there and uh, and, and brought it out. So basically, yeah. we've talked to Walpole a lot because people have to realize that Walpole really did kind of shape the political environment in that period heavily. Mm-hmm. And I mean, um, we're not going to mm. stop talking about Warpool as well. Like Warpool is going to be like we're going to talk about him with Pelham. I'm sure that we're going to talk about him with Newcastle as well. I mean, like he's directly involved with the New- the Norfolk Congress as well. So like Warpool is very influential from here on out for quite some time. Yeah, yeah, and this policy that he had uh, basically of trying to avoid war and suing for peace was something which was continued um, after his uh, his sort of term of office. Um, one of the things which kind of precipitated the end of Walpole. Um, so it's interesting. So there's the War of Jenkins' Ear. So this is essentially a war with Spain in Spanish America. It's Florida versus Georgia. Um, so this is another angle of that thing that I was trying to say, you know, history is not two dimensional. And as much as there's stuff going on in the, the Far East and in, in India, there's stuff going on in the New World as well. Um, there's stuff going on in Europe at the same time. And these guys are trying to contend with what are essentially British interests. They're not fully in control, um, but they kind of are aware that these issues are developing. And yeah. that they have to manage the fallout in the UK. And this is what I feel requires a lot of skill. It's it's good to have all the information. But what do you do when you've only got a percentage of the information? You know, these guys must have been supremely good at managing essentially what is a vacuum of information. Yeah, it's <clears throat> I can't imagine that time period of just like like we were talking about earlier of like you get this letter and like you're like oh shoot we need to send these guys out to do this thing and then it it'll take like months to get any kind of word back about what you sent them out to do and so like <clears throat> meanwhile these people are like sitting in these rooms receiving letters from multiple places talking about all these things and how you must like cipher through all of that information come up with a cohesive idea of what's going on and then like a plan about it you know like how to go about that like i mean we we're talking about it earlier with the internet with phones like right now it's just like oh i see this video of this thing because everybody's got a phone but like 
you wouldn't know about something that's going on on the other side of the ocean within a couple of days. Like that takes a long time to travel that that distance, like weeks. And so like weeks at the minimum, <laughs> like, you know, like it's it's a long process. And so you a ship going there and then back and sending information and to to receive word and supplies like it. That is a task for somebody to do. And God, and I'm grateful to live in the future. Yeah. And we've also got to comment on, you know, the reliability of this information. So as in, you know, when we kind of uh, intimated in previous podcasts, when we've talked about the East India Company, you know, these people sent the information back that they wanted to send back, that they knew that the British government and the king wanted to hear. Absolutely. So, so therefore, they were very, they basically monopolized the you know, you know that information channel. And when something came through, and sometimes it did, which was not to their liking, yeah, you know, that was nudged out. All of the publishers said, "Sorry, we're not interested." You know, this is the kind of um, essentially domination which was extended towards public life, yeah. which the East India Company had access to. The government could basically manage. Um, nowadays, that's not possible. So when we talk about what created the kinds of prejudices and discrimination that, and racism and sense of false sense of superiority that we see, you know, this has developed over hundreds of years of false information coming through. Yeah. Um, and if we repeat this a hundred times and people get bored of it, I'm sorry, but you know, over, over these centuries these lies have been repeated and that's why they still continue to be repeated i think yeah. only only on tuesday wasn't it that in five states in the usa they voted to um basically make slavery illegal because it still wasn't illegal in yep. five states it's 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 fucking crazy to think about that like i was scrolling through twitter the other day and i saw this t this headline that was like tennessee it was either tennessee or kentucky um votes to ban slavery and like reading into it more like i already know about prison labor and how horrible it is here in the u.s and it does still count as slavery and that's exactly what they're talking about is unpaid prison labor um and especially in places like georgia where they have a higher black population and especially in their prison system it is like horrifyingly reminiscent of like slave like slaved past america you know um and so it's just terrifying to realize that it's not over and that it hasn't been over there are so many things that america like i had this conversation with a friend of mine recently that the american revolution has never really been finished like it's not over like the goal of that revolution has never really been met. We haven't like it was met by like a group of 35 people who are like, yeah, this is these are our needs met. And for the rest of the people, you know, the thing that we the people is like our mission and our drive has never been met and our revolution has never happened. Like we still haven't finished it. And so to see those things of just like it's it still hasn't finished like all these historical things that we're like woo we gained our independence from like a king and instead we replaced it with 35 lesser kings like and we're all still bowing down to this mega corporations and like 
it's just like not to get like all woke and liberal you know but like it's it's very much in that feeling of just like we haven't finished this we're not done um and like relating to the racism that is so deeply rooted like i did some reading recently about the american wild west and how poorly framed it is um and how horribly we look at it nowadays like it's just it's not at all what happened like you have this idea of cowboys versus indians and that's not what it was at all it was a it was the american army slaughtering native americans with like machine guns and they had nothing like families and so it's all the way that it's framed in this like same way that the east india trading company had framed these people as savages like as soon as you frame it that way everybody's fine with you doing what you do and as long as you frame it that way and as long as you're leaving out so many of like the worst details you are going to have this monopoly on the information that's going out and the information that people are receiving and how they feel about this and they're going to have these assumptions and these racist ideas about these people from here on out and we're going to continue to see it for quite some time like even up until now like this is very much the root of a lot of this stuff yeah yeah um, and that kind of also ties in with where we're going with um, with regards to uh, Compton is because the, the war of Jenkins here, as I said, which precipitated in some ways the downfall of Walpole, um, es essentially included the history, which is essentially the slave trade. So this was um, the culmination of a number of different um, little battles, little um, disagreements and so on, which involved where the, the British merchants took over access of the supply of slaves um, to certain regions within uh, America and Spanish America. And, and this was essentially what one of the problems were. So um, you know, Compton, even though he was only there for a short period of time, um, he has in some ways the fact that he was able to take over as, as prime minister. It is in some way connected to uh, what was happening over uh, across the Atlantic. Yeah. Um, so we, I don't have, I like you, I didn't find too much with regards to what Compton actually achieved while prime minister. However, I did find a couple of statements about him being authoritarian. He basically knew how to piss people off um, <laughs> and he made um, a lot of decisions which he did not confer with his cabinet colleagues. I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that kind of reminds me of a certain John Adams. Um, <laughs> he he was apparently a really hard worker, which also reminds me of John Adams. So, um, but he was a ship manager. Um, and what's quite interesting was that he worked so damn hard, it started to affect his health. Um, and that's why he died on the job. Yeah. Basically. It's a damn shame. Absolutely. Yeah. Gutted. <laughs> Not really. Crying at home. As soon as I read that, I cried. <laughs> no. Poor, poor um, guy. Yeah, yeah no, I, I didn't really get too much about his, like, his prime minister term. Like, yeah, no, other than just that Warpole's political heirs replaced him. Like, yeah. that was pretty much it. Like, yeah. Man. Yeah. So that's when we come to Mr. Henry Pelham. 
um and he's also a wig so therefore that's basically three out of three you know they're doing quite well with regards to um you know, their prime ministers yeah um yeah do you want to quickly go through his history or, or how, how do you want to play it? uh sure so born in september or born on september 25th uh, 1694. He got an education at King's College and migrated to, um, oh man, he, he migrated over to Oxford um, until September 1710. Um, he served as a volunteer for the army during the pro-Stuart Jacobite Rising of 1715, um, and he com- commanded dragoons um, at the Battle of Preston. I had to do some reading into what dragoons are, um, and I'm imagining that he, like, is just in cavalry, like, just light, medium cavalry. Like, I guess that in, like, the early 1600s, the dragoons were used as, like, taking bridges and strategic points, but eventually they just turned into a term that everybody used for light and medium cavalry. So, at this point, I imagine that he's just in cavalry. Um, So then, after he's traveling through Europe for a while... Um, honestly, not that long after the battle, um, he returns back um, to Britain and his brother arranges for him to return as an MP um, at Seaford in Sussex on February 28, 1717. Um, he represents there for five years. Um, yeah, his family's influence like is super, super influential to where he gets like specifically with his brother, like Newcastle is extremely influential in how he gets into so many of the positions that he gets into. It's like the whole time I read everything, I was just like, oh, your brother literally did like almost all of this for you. Tight. <laughs> it's pretty fun. What's quite interesting was that there, there are certain things about the Pelham brothers, which made me think of the Kennedys. Yeah. Now, mm. it's a- <laughs> yeah, it sounds a bit crazy, but I mean, there there are some connections there with the kind of way that they do things. And um, so but maybe we'll touch upon that a bit later on. But, yeah, it's very the important. Are, the Pelhams are 18th century Kennedys. <laughs> <laughs> why not? Why not? It's yeah. a possibility. Fuck it. Um, so That's I. so funny. What's funny is that my notes on him start from basically the time that he returns from the the ventures that you've uh, outlined. So in 1721, he's chosen as Lord of the Treasury, which is basically the third highest position held in government, not including the monarch. In 1724, he becomes Secretary of War, which is basically just administrative duties. He doesn't really have any sort of uh, charge of military policy. Um, In 1930, uh, just 1930, he became paymaster of forces, which was a far more lucrative position um, and where he kind of was able to manage the finances of the armed forces. Um, Now, as I kind of referred to earlier with regards to War of Jenkins' ear, there was also the War of Austrian Succession, which kind of took place between 1740 and 1748, which also took part or played a part in the downfall of Walpole because people thought, you just don't know what you're doing. Um, It's a really interesting part of history to read about the War of Austrian Succession. The only thing that I I I made a note here, but um, I think we can skip over it. But I I would recommend that people, if they want to read about it, that they should do. What's interesting here is that there is a principle established called the Pragmatic Sanction Act in 1713, which allowed for women to inherit 
the throne. Um, and this was called the pragmatic sanction because it was uh, essentially prepared or made by the pragmatic allies uh, who supported Maria Theresa. And uh, that were the allies were Britain, the Dutch and Hanover who were also connected to the British crown. So there's quite a bit of um, detail there. What yeah. One of the notes that I, I put down, I, I tend not to use the F word, um, but basically to be really disrespectful with regards to the, the monarchy and how they've done things in Europe over the last few hundred years, it's basically royal fuck bingo, yeah, is, is the way that I've um, kind of highlighted it here. <laughs> Um, because there's so much intermarriage and yeah. people, you go here, you go there. And, um, do you know, what? I've got a 12 year old daughter. Why don't we set, set something up? And, um, the, obviously the height of distaste from my side, reading this stuff, but everybody's related. So, and the crazy thing is they are so damn greedy that, you know, oh, you're my cousin, but do you know what? I kind of like your wife. I'm going to take that. Yeah. Or, um, you know, I like this castle or I like that land and this and that. I hate it, man. I don't understand what these yeah. guys are. And we've let these people rule for thousands of years. They're mad. They're sadistic. Yeah. That's that's a bit that I was going to add was like that. It's also like intertwined that it's like we don't want to share this with anybody who is from that lower class. Like, I mean, there's always been like distaste when a royal gets married to like somebody who isn't from a higher standing or isn't from like another like royal family of some kind like it's it's fucking gross man i completely agree that it's just like why do we keep letting these people stay in the same place for all this time like is there a reason other than just you being a figurehead like and a symbol of like stability i guess i don't know i guess i understand the stability thing kind of but at the same time like i mean get a new president every four years i don't know like everything changes all the time so i just don't get it to the same degree but it's just like why do we let these people stay in power for so long continue to do the same corrupt shit for so long like ah, it's painful it's painful it's absolutely painful. And um, the worst thing is that, you know, they are greedy. They want them, you know, to get their hands on somebody else's castle or somebody else's wife or somebody else's daughter. Um, but who has to go and do the fighting is the poor people. Yeah, they're the ones that have to go. You know, if they get if they get killed, I mean, you know, I don't know how much money gets paid to their family. Hardly any, if anything, yeah. if they complain, they're slapped down. Yeah. Um, so and, and, you know, this has been basically perpetuated for centuries. And, you know, it's a real surprise to me. It's taken so long to, you know, to get power from them. But this is what the Pelhams kind of achieve. Um, and that is really interesting. Yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, it's painful. Like just bottom line, it's it's just a painful reality of so much of what we still are doing today. You know, like we still go through the same shit of just like all these rich people are fighting for these big things. And then the people that are actually fighting for it, though, are poor people who just kind of needed this money to go to college or just to pay off their student debt or literally any plethora of reasons like 
and they're being used as weapons and like they are being sacrificed at like for what though this is kind of the thing that it usually comes back to is like what is this sacrifice for though like does it really matter like i i have a friend who came back from the middle east and serving and like one of the questions that he has is like was this worth it like and it's just like yeah that's tough like that's scary i can't imagine being in that position so like even back then same people are still doing the exact same things like it's important when you look at history to notice that things just don't change, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Unfortunately, the, the, the names change um, and, you know, perhaps the, the, the reasons for doing things in some ways for some individuals, but essentially um, a lot of things stay the same. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Pelham, I've kind of made a note here is that he becomes um, sort of uh, the second part of the Carteret ministry on, on a sense or the, the Carteret group, because uh, John Carteret, who's the second Baron Carteret, um, he continued his uh, role as Secretary of State for the Northern Department, which is essentially basically he was head of foreign affairs. Um, but that didn't last too long because, and this is where I remembered the Kennedys, because basically Carteret's influence allowed for Pelham to come in, yeah? And then afterwards, the Pelham brothers said, thank you, mate, now you can piss off. Um, and then... <laughs> the way that they did it is just so, like, God, the it's balls cool, on it? you guys. Yeah, dude, just, like, tell the king straight up, Either he's gone or we're done. Like, we're going to leave you with no government. Holy fuck, dude. That is just like, you just like slap your dick on the table and you're just like, this is it, bitch. Like, <laughs> fuck you kind of thing. And I'm just like, damn, son, chill. Like, and it works. It works. Like, god damn. God damn. <sighs> It's cool, though, isn't it? Where, I mean, I remember sort of Hannibal from the A-Team. I love it when a plan comes together. Yeah, so I'm kind of thinking Pelham walks away with his big cigar in his mouth. He's like, um, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Where's Hannibal? Yeah. Where's Hannibal? Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so basically, you know, they, there's one point where they basically go on a two-day hiatus, I read. Um, and um, the king was just unable to form a government. Yeah. And so they basically had to beg them to come back and take over. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think they even may have done this twice. So, you know, maybe I'm going to. Yeah, I think it was on the. I think it was on the second time that um, that the Pelham stepped away for two days. And then the king was yeah. like, I need you back. Please come back. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they did this twice. Yeah. So yeah. the first time was to get rid of Carteret so they could basically establish their power. Um, and the reason why it reminds me of Kennedy, and we'll touch upon Kennedy in in, in a couple of years, I think, because that's how long it's going to take us to get there. Um, yeah. But basically, when Kennedy was was elected, apparently his dad used his mob contacts to win the support. I think it was in Chicago, but I'm not sure. Without that, Kennedy would not have been elected. Yeah. Anyway, after election, um, uh, the, the Kennedys went after the mob with a passion. Um, which may have led to you know, his demise. But anyway, in this case, it didn't happen quite as tragically as that. Um, and the king essentially gave in. Uh, Carteret was gone. The, the Pelham brothers came in and took over. Um, and that, as they say, was that. Yeah. It's, uh, God, that's so 
fucking funny. Like, I, when I read that, I was seriously like, wait, wow. That's, it's like low-key impressive as hell. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, I think the only other thing that's, like, kind of before this happens is just kind of mentioning the Norfolk Congress um, a little bit more just because he's, like, Pelham, Pelham and Newcastle are both super, super involved in it. Um, and I just kind of wanted to talk about it because on the Wikipedia page, there isn't anything about a Norfolk Congress. I had to do extra finding, like, the like the little blue extra information is red. And it was like, there's nothing here. And I was like, that's fucking weird. Um, but it turns out that, like, Warpole had this big, wonderful estate that he hosted many parties at. He It was mostly, like, parties for wigs. Um, he did hunting, feasts, parties, things along those lines. Um, but a lot of people felt as though it was kind of just a front for a much more, like, at, at its most sinister for it being, like, coercion and, like, kind of planning what to do with the government between him and his closest allies. Um, so, like, him, um, Newcastle and, well, Warpole, Newcastle, and Pelham all three of them are super involved in the Norfolk Congress. They have many discussions. I think that this even, like, has um, Pelham in agreement with Warpole about the Axis crisis of, um, like, 1733, I think, um, in which he supports that decision um, and which was super controversial for Warpole. I believe that we did talk about it in the last episode. Um, but it they're talking about all these things on the inside, but I just thought that it was really weird that it was difficult to find information about it, the things that they talked about, the things that they did in there, aside from hunting and having parties. Like, of course that's what happens at a country club, but we all know that there's way, sh like, skeezier shit going on at a country club. Like, hey, come to my place. Now that I've given you this this wonderful experience, can you do me a favor? Like, the whole time that I'm, like, imagining that, I'm imagining that that's got to be what Warpole was doing. Like, that must have been how he had such ins, you know? Like, that must have been where he had got, like, information. That must have been where he had his spies, like, kind of meeting and chatting, you know? Like, it's, I don't know. I'm interested to un understand why it felt like it, like, just another thing that feels like it's kind of buried, you know? Um, I'm curious That's why a, that is. Uh, yeah, I find that interesting as well. I also made the note of it, and as you were talking through it, I'm trying to find where exactly it was that I put it, but I, I've I've kind of lost it in in the, uh, the 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 depth of notes that I've got here, and um, so I'm I, I think we will return to this anyway. Yeah. Um, at some point. Um, I've also made a few extra notes, and you you mentioned the the Jacobite um, uprising earlier in the century. So uh, in 1745, this also occurred again because during the War of Austrian Succession, the Jacobites tried to take advantage of this. The reason why I bring it up is one of the uh, things which uh, Pelham kind of pushed through was the Jewish Naturalization Act of 1753. Um, and this essentially allowed for people of Jewish origin to appeal to Parliament for citizenship. Um, the Tories at the time complained that 
uh, such a, uh, an act was the abandonment of Christianity. The public reacted with a savage outburst of anti-Jewish sentiment, and the bill was then repealed in 1754. Yep. In the research which I've done, um, I haven't yet established any point where this law was reenacted any, in any way. Um, so maybe this was just something which passed through into norm normality. And so therefore, people of Jewish descent were essentially allowed to become British citizens by you know, virtue of the fact that they probably British and they yeah. lived there for a couple of hundred years. So why the hell not? Um, so that that, yeah. learning about that, I just thought that that was so crazy. The like public outcry of anti-Semitism. I was, I don't know, like it the like argument of like in defense of christianity like that made sense to me like i understand that from the historical point of view like where all these people are at but just wow that was painful to listen to and like to read was just like how many of these people were like nope we don't like jewish people like just straight up like that's I don't know. I, I hate to see how often Jews are like discriminated against and like put into the most horrible situations throughout history. Like they are one of the most like. I don't even know how to phrase it just because like I, I, ju I just Perse don't know how to phrase it. Yeah, yeah. they are perhaps the most persecuted ethnic origin or yeah. ethnicity in, in history and for, for thousands of years and by almost everyone. Yeah. Um, and the, the crazy bit of sort of history that I see is that Jewish communities all around the world throughout history have tried to abide by the rules that the local prevailing governments have forced upon them. And when some among them, because not every person of Jewish orig origin has managed to flourish, but when some among them have flourished, that has then become cause to subjugate the rest of the community to some kind of other form of persecution. Yeah. So you know, any normal person looking at it would say, well, minute, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Yeah. So what is it you guys want from these poor people? And I, I just don't get it. And I mean, it's also come up, if I'm not mistaken, recently with regards to Kyrie Irving um, and some of the stuff that he's come out with this. Uh, he kind of apparently he um, uploaded a video which uh, appeared to express a certain uh, anti-Jewish sentiment as well. And it took him a long time to apologize for it and to take it down and so on. And he was suspended from his team as a result. Yeah. Um, and you know, the question must once again be raised. Why is it that after so many years, we still cannot overcome the fact that you simply cannot look at an entire race of people and tar them with a certain kind of brush? Yeah. You know, we are individuals. Everyone we, yeah. is different. We're, we're all people. We're all here doing this thing like called life, you know, and it's heartbreaking that there's still like because of such rooted um racism anti-semitism homophobia transphobia the list goes on um misogyny like all of these things that are so deeply rooted in so many of our societies that it's 
I don't know. It's just painful to still hear people say the things that they feel comfortable saying, you know, like feeling this ability to just be openly racist, be openly homophobic. Like I, in some ways, like I, 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 I kind of appreciate when people are open about that stuff because it allows me to just like kind of cut them out of my life immediately and also allows other people to know that you're not the kind of person that I want to be around. But it's still just like one of those things where it's like, how can you feel that comfortable just like saying the things that you say, you know, like it's it's terrifying and it is so deeply rooted because of like how we've developed our societies and how we have like put laws into place to discriminate against certain people. The way that we've like segregated communities to make it so that way these people aren't around everybody else. You know, like it's it sucks. I hate it. And I hate that it's still so prevalent today. Yeah. And it all, uh, as we kind of referred to earlier, it comes down in many ways to the fact that society has believed influential elements within its own of its own creation that have basically tainted the reputation of entire ethnic or ethnicity. Um, and they have simply taken that as truth. And these lies have been you know, told on countless occasions, you know, decades long, centuries long, and people believe it and people still believe it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, this is the unfortunate, I say the word unfortunate, it's, it's a thousand times worse than that. But you know, the unfortunate truth is that all of these things are based upon lies. And yet here we are still having to fight against this level of discrimination. And it's got nothing to do with being woke. This is a question of decency and understanding human dignity. And that's about it, I think. Yeah, no um, kidding. I, I hate that argument of like, you're just woke. Like, no, it's I care about other people i guess i don't know i didn't realize that caring about other human beings and being empathetic was woke like if that's yeah. what being woke it's terrible is, man yeah oh, fuck dude, i hate being woke like the fuck like <laughs> other people need to work on that more like i don't understand why that's such a bad thing yeah absolutely no i'm, I'm happy i'm very comfortable with my wokeness and uh, i'll wear a t-shirt to that effect if that's what it takes I care less. <laughs> um yeah so all right Going back to uh, Pelham then. So um, Pelham had a good relationship with the king, but not his son, Frederick. Yeah. yeah. So Frederick, um, they love all of these little groups that they've created. So there's something called the Leicester House Party set. Yeah. And so the, the, the prince is pretty much quite high up with that. And what he tries to do um, is test his constitutional position. And he wants to get the Pelhamites out. So he wants to create uh, this general election in 1748. But the Pelham brothers are pretty damn intelligent. Um, and they get the king to dissolve parliament in 1747. And so in 1748, much earlier than the prince has opportunity to prepare his support for, these guys come back in again. Um, and it's basically crazy cool. Um, <laughs> and... Yeah, we kind of talked earlier about how they and you corrected me as well, where they go on this two day hiatus and this was a different time and so on and so forth. But what essentially they managed to secure was that they made the king promise um, that he would have complete confidence in their government to manage things. And so basically they reduced the influence of the king on 
government. And so therefore, a lot more influence was then passed to the commons mm. as a result. And this is what the Pelham brothers did. Um, uh, well, one of the many steps over time, but this is one of the main steps, I believe. Um, yeah. And that is quite interesting. I also thought that that was pretty interesting. Um, and that all coming about because of uh, Bath and Cartier or uh, Cartier. Nah, I think it's Cartier. Um, going to try to get Cartier. the key. Cartier, yeah. yeah, I thought so. I, I'm like looking at my handwriting. I'm like, I can't actually read that. So good job, me. <laughs> um, but they they tried to get the king to like do everything that you just said, um, and it they just completely failed at it. Like they like it was that because of that two day hiatus. Like the king was like, yeah, we're gonna get you guys to come on and try to do this, and they left and. Um, like the king was like they couldn't make anything happen so the king was just like please come back <laughs> i need you guys and that's when you you see like that change of like more power being in commons than with the king directly you know i think that that's i think that that's kind of a good change in my opinion you know yeah absolutely um and so i mean some more of the research which um i did really brought into a bit more focus the the habsburgs um i think we're gonna have to maybe do a show or two about some of these other families just sort of outside of our pm presidential storyline because yeah. you know, these other you know, influences are, are quite prominent um in 1748, there's something called the Treaty of aix la chapelle which essentially ended the, the War of Austrian Succession, but it wasn't particularly uh, successful and um, it still created, uh, let's say, room for uh, future shit to go down. Yeah. Um, the European royals are an extremely entitled bunch of gits. Um, and so I'm really not surprised that so many people decided to run off and uh, yeah, establish a new life in the new world. I would yeah. <laughs> no why, would you, why would you hang around with these tosses? Um, it's basically the way that it is. They've been in charge for like a thousand years already. So like. And what had they created in that yeah. time? So might as well might as well scramble over to the new world where everything is going to be totally fine. Oh, yeah. Lovely. No problems whatsoever. I actually don't um, think America has ever had any problems ever, really, now that I'm thinking about it. No, no. I mean, that, that place is just the embodiment of stability. Um, what is what is also interesting under Pelham, and, and I don't, there was nothing which really spoke to this. There, there was like one or two suggestions, so I'm just going to throw it in there. And if it's wrong, you know, OK, psh, you can give me a dislike. Um, <laughs> but basically, Pelham expanded this press ganging people into the navy so they and there was also a lot of instability at the time and that's why they had to come up with something called the gin act in 1751 because uh, basically there was so much criminality at the time um, and they blamed it on the um, prevalence of alcohol yeah um, the from unlicensed drink. Yeah, you saw that too. Cool. Damn um, yeah, so they basically tried to uh, yeah nip that uh, as much as was possible. Um, and so what I found was that this process of press ganging people into the armed forces, what it led to was the 
the beginning of the industrialization of the war machine. And so therefore, my take on that is, could this have been the first tentative steps to what we now know as the military industrial complex? Um, and if that's the case, can we call Pelham the bastard in chief of murderous affairs? And and that that's just the way I saw it. Yeah, no, I support that fully. I uh, I kind of there were a few points where I did raise my my brow a little bit when I was reading through like the press gang stuff and just like it was like oh wait a second <laughs> like now we're doing this like big time like we're not kidding anymore about making this military like and expanding it to just kind of like we're just grabbing these ships kind of thing and like now you're part of us like uh okay like that you don't really have an option at that point like there's not much that you can really do on the open sea if somebody's like grabs your ship and then is like welcome to the navy son it's like do you sail away do you jump overboard like where are you gonna go like you just kind of are like yeah sure i guess and so like that that's terrifying <laughs> like i can't like it's it's like just like those enlistment officers at high school being like you want to join the military son come on show me how many pull-ups you can do and it's just like i'm like 17 i'm getting my high school diploma right now chill homie like it's so bizarre but yeah i can co completely get behind like calling him the bastard of uh the industrial war machine yeah it's a fucking monster <laughs> Yeah, and and as as we kind of know, as in when people are have already been you know put on the list, they they they've been given um, a, a sort of position on a boat or on a ship. Um, that's it. The captain is God, and through the captain is the hierarchy. You've got a problem. Doesn't matter. Now you're you're at sea now, yeah. and so you've got a problem. You got yeah, you're overboard. But first of all, you've got to help out. So, you you, you know, these people are treated like um, yeah, absolute shit. Um, and what sucks and is their only, like, ability to escape their shitty time is to go back to port and drink. And mind you, while they were doing some horrible stuff, it still sucks that their only, like, like solace is like completely taken away from them. Like these dudes are taken from everything that they have and they're like basically just conscripted into this military. And then they're like, all right, I'm back at port. And Pelham is like, booze, eh, 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 no more. You gotta be authorized to sell it only. And I mean, if the fewer people who can sell and the fewer people who can deal means that there's fewer people who can consume. And so it does work. But, like, of course it fucking works because you stop, like, the majority of people who are selling booze. Like, duh. <laughs> but that fucking sucks, man. Like, just overall, I'm, like, thinking just what a shitty time. You, like, you go back to port after your ship has been captured and you're like, I just I just want to have a drink at the pub. And you get there and the dude is like, we're actually not selling alcohol anymore. Yeah. And then you're I'm like. trying some hot milk. Yeah, you, like uh, some tea, yeah. something. Tea's tea's nice. Yeah. yeah, that's 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 definitely on the menu. Um, 
Yeah, exactly. And so therefore, there's quite a lot of stuff going on that we, again, as you said before as well, you've really got to go clicking through a lot of different uh, sources and find different things out. So um, this is already approaching the end period of Pelham's um, rule. But there are a couple of things that happen as well that I have to mention. So in 1751, all the way on the other side of the world in, in India, something happens, which is called the Battle of Arco. Now, uh, I read the, the background of this as well, and it's really interesting. But essentially, um, the British and the French are fighting for influence in, in India. And the prevailing power at the time, I believe, was um, the uh, the Islamic contingent there. And there's an individual, I believe, called Muhammad Ali, which is quite easy to remember um so the british go in and there is this battle of arco which takes place and um a particularly i have to find this guy's name because he is a a particularly interesting character and he is a a very aggressive tactician Uh, robert clive is essentially given a certain responsibility to take arco which was the the sort of home uh fort or town of this uh, the, the Muslim ruler who was being supported by the French. Um, and then there is a battle in 1751 and uh, Clive uses some really interesting tactics, manages to fight off Muhammad Ali and that sounds so crazy saying it. When you said it the first time, I was like, I'm picturing this like, dude, it's like in the boxing ring. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Fuck you guys, pow! <laughs> Yeah, nobody called Clive is going to be him. But um, yeah. yeah, so apparently that's what happens. Um, and so this essentially acts as some kind of a boon for the East India Company. And from this point on, from the middle of the 18th century on, they practically take over India. Yeah. Um, and one comparison that I saw or I read online was that, can you imagine if Amazon takes over Europe? with its own army that's kind of like what we're talking about with the east india company taking over india what a great comparison huh yeah jesus christ i yeah that's a really good comparison wow that does put it into like a completely different perspective because like every time i've read about it like it's like yeah i see it like that but now like to imagine like jeffrey bezos like being like and now my rocket ships will be armed with missiles and we will be launching to Europe. Like the idea of that is fucking bonkers. But like this is a time period where these companies are so they can be so powerful. They can have such influence. Like, I mean, there there are still so many companies that still do have such influence like Amazon, but like certainly not to an extent that I'm. I imagine that Amazon is developing an army, you know what I mean? Like to, to establish these, this control, like it's, but Jesus Christ, that's painful. Like just, and the amount of horror that they, I I think doing an entire episode on the East India trading company is probably not too bad of an idea we're we're coming we're we're getting there yeah because we we are going to get to when they really as in this next century between now and the the middle of the 19th century is really really where they they reach their zenith so we're going to touch upon that 
1720, for example, 15% of all British imports came from India. I mean, that's quite a bit when yeah. you consider, you know, at, at the time, the distance that had to be traversed and so on. Um, so, you know, clearly the, the East India Company is operating in a certain way. However, by militarizing themselves thereafter, they were able to propel themselves forward in a way that they hadn't been able to up until that point. Clearly, there were some yeah, elements of, um, I suppose there were some battles here and there, but nothing quite like what is about to occur. Yeah. Um, and so this is what uh, was quite interesting. This kind of started at the ra- around time of, um, of, of Pelham. And so therefore, I have to say that he must take some of the blame um and yeah so uh, one other thing that he so he introduced by the way the adoption of the gregorian calendar and he also introduced something called the the marriage act 1753 uh, which stated that people under the age of 21 would uh, need the consent consent of their parents to to get married um, but obviously this didn't apply to royalty so therefore they could marry anybody they wanted no matter what age yeah. they were um, and so on and so forth. Um, During his time, he did like, like with the Treaty of um, Asla Chapelle, he uh, it ended up reducing the navy spending quite dramatically. Um, it was from twelve million pounds uh, down to seven million pounds, which is quite dramatic. Um, true. He also promised to reduce the interest rates um, for the national debt from 4% to 3% by 1757. Um, he lowered the land tax to an equivalent of 20% down to 10%, um, which is like I, – I mostly had that stuff written down just to kind of point out his financial um, and economic um, – like policy that he kind of enacted because he did do quite a bit that in terms of economic policy that I haven't really seen from a few others so far. Like he really did enact enough stuff to try to make a difference in the long run, reducing the national debt. Like I, I didn't mention that so much, but I, I have that kind of in my conclusion because um, the way that I kind of visualize it is that he reduced the taxes because the only people who can actually pay taxes are, are the rich anyway. They're his buddies. Um, a lot of other people. <laughs> Shit, you're totally right. <laughs> Nobody really has anything. To, they don't have, they can't own yeah. anything. Yeah. So therefore, they don't have anything. And so, you know, if, if I have zero and you say to me, hey, I'll reduce your tax. I mean, I don't have anything anyway. Yeah. It doesn't make a difference to me. But the people that who, who are supposed to be looking after my ass, oh, you're going to reduce their taxes. Oh, well, that's nice. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is definitely something which even today's Tories um, and neoliberals would agree with. So um, I get what you're saying about reducing the the national debt, but to be but honest, the, but the land tax thing, yeah. As soon as you said that, I was like, oh shit, yeah, no, we are still in a time period where the only people who fucking own land are rich people, like, and it's the wealthy people who are still like extremely influential. So of course, like, yeah, sure, reduce their tax. Fuck you. 
I take back everything I said, Bellum. No, I hate no, no, you, man. No, no, I don't. I don't necessarily want to change your opinion too much about him because he. What is interesting was that apparently he died poor. Um. So therefore, which sort of flies in the face of the way Walpole's situation was when he died. So Walpole yeah. died in, in you know quite well to do. Um. So Pelham comes across as being a very honest person, um, a very intelligent person. Um, and very capable as a manager because he had to also manage lots of people who had very different ideas in his cabinet. And he was able to channel all of that um, and still maintain control for a substantial period of time. Um, And uh, yeah, as I said, he's uh, he dies again on the job, but he is replaced by his brother, which unfortunately, this was something the Kennedys could not replicate sorry guy Mm. yeah so and and do you have any other conclusions to give with regards to pelham um i mean not really i think that it was like overall i think that both of both pelham and compton were super interesting to read about pelham was much more in depth just in terms of how much stuff there is about him there was more information to obtain about him his length in office was so much longer so there's so many more things that you can get information about for him um but yeah i don't know just corrupt politicians doing more corrupt things for themselves and for their friends you know like it feels like that's just kind of the common the commonality between all these people you know like it is it is kind of nice to know that um, he didn't die like super wealthy, you know, like that was something <laughs> that I read when he like um, when he did make the switch from what was it, it was like paymaster of the forces. Um, like when he made that shift, it was kind of labeled as um, being a more lucrative position that he could like do more things but also that he could potentially like slide some more money out you know like there was some interesting things about that but it didn't really seem like he really did that a whole lot Um, no because if he had done then uh, and he'd been caught doing it not only would he have been responsible for it but also his descendants so therefore if he died and then it was found out that he'd stolen money from the the crown his his kids would have been responsible for that or his family so wow you know, he he had a lot of power yeah but he had to be very careful with it so th- that particular position uh the paymaster of the forces uh where he basically managed the finances of the armed forces you can't screw around with that yeah so he um yeah he had to be quite honest as a result i think yeah and it does make me feel uh like i don't know he he did he enacted some like interesting policies that i really was kind of surprised about that i wasn't necessarily expecting like the um the jew bill of 1753 and uh the marriage act of 1753 as well like those were two things that i don't think i was really expecting um at least in this time period but also kind of the backlash about it as well was pretty interesting Mm. those are like yeah the biggest notes that I've got on on his term. 
And just to point out as well that this actually how it is referred to as the Jew Bill of excuse me of 1753. Um, Though I referred to it um, with its more shall we say official name of the Jewish Naturalization Act, but that's slightly different. That's an actual act, and that's not the uh, the Jew Bill which uh, preceded it. Yeah. Um, which I'm, which is the unfortunate term that it is known for. It sucks reading shit like that because it's just like, man, what a like horrible thing to label that as, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, and I don't know. There are times when I write things down that I'm just like, I don't know how like comfortable I feel like saying shit like that sometimes. But I also really value people knowing what it was and like understanding the context of how these people were talking about these people like even in just saying like calling it the jew bill like that is such a fucking like i don't know it 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 just like boils a human being down just to that thing and then like like they're nothing else other than being a jew and it's just like why why are we getting so specific on that part like just fucking chill on that please like yeah. what are you hitler it, it, it does strike me as a bit odd and and also we we you know there are you know issues um of terminology which are also referenced uh, in more modern times but maybe we'll touch yeah. upon those in at a future point um all right aiden We've, uh, we're well through the uh, the hour mark, um, so I yeah. think we're down to ratings. But look, because there's two of them here, you know, I know you want me to do the Brits, but uh, there's two of them, man. Are you going to make me do both of them for ratings? Come on. You know, I, I can split it with you. I can split it with you. Sure. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Okay. All right. Which one do you want to take on? Who do you want to rate first? Now, that's a question. Um I feel like I could probably do Compton just because he's it's such a short term, not really much <laughs> about him. But I'm okay, I, fair enough. I'd, lo- I'd, I'd, I'd really want to know how you'd rate Pelham. So, what did we rate? Um, Warpole 13? 13, yeah. Yeah, I'd say Compton is above Warpole. Okay. Just because. Like, looking at his term, there's really just not much about it. God, this this is actually really hard. Because, mm. like, just a solid 30, probably. Like, What's... That's so not, funny. Like, I don't know. Like, I, a 50 feels too high, you know? Below 30 is just, like, you really did some fucking weird shit, man. But, like, 30 is just you're a guy doing your thing. You did some weird shit, kind of, but just not super notable. 30 feels like a good spot for him. Like, what, what's so funny is that just before you said that, I wrote 30 for Pelham. Really? And yeah, I wanted to share my screen with you because I had 30 in and then you said 30. And, um, yeah, that works for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. And I'm I'm happy with 30 for both of them, um, because even though Pelham did, he tried to push through some very good um, uh, laws, as it were. Yeah. Um, at the same time, during his period, 
this is where we see the expansion of um, the, the military in certain ways. We see the growth of the East India Company. Um, and I can't forgive somebody for allowing these things to occur. Yeah. Um, and on that basis, I couldn't give him more than 30. Yeah. So I don't hold him personally responsible necessarily for what uh, the East India Company did. Um, I'm pretty sure they held back quite a lot of the details of what they intended to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's no way he can get more than 30. And I think the East India Company is going to taint a lot of prime ministers going forward. So that's just yeah. uh, that's just how it is. Comes with the job. Yeah. Just the East India Trading Company is the equivalent of how the Americans treated the Native Americans and how that's going to taint uh, everything that they do from Jefferson out. You know. Yeah. We are coming to some really, really interesting times. Uh, yeah, dude, I, I was like sitting down last night and I was just like, fuck, we're getting to like some really exciting, like, ooh, this is going to be tasty. Mm, I'm excited. Oh, God. No. Like, and, um, and next up, we've got uh, James Madison. So yeah. um, no. I was I was kind of curious if you wanted to do a special episode and talk about Lewis and Clark in uh, Chicago um, just to kind of talk about Western expansion for America. Um, and I don't know. Do you have an interest in talking about them? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I'm very interested in this, um, you know, where the origins of, um, you know, expansionism and, uh, empire and this colonialism um, comes from and what it is what is it that drives a group of individuals to pursue these kinds of policies so yeah um, yeah let's do it if you want to cool. do that next we'll do that next and then we'll jump into Madison we need to do a few extra shows in between the prime ministers because there are so many more prime ministers than there have been presidents yeah. so um, yeah and that works well for me looking at the uh, list of prime ministers i feel like there's several that we can kind of just like join together with some of these shorter <laughs> terms like uh, especially like newcastle i think is only like a year and a half maybe two years um but i think but it's then like he a, comes back oh does he yeah newcastle yeah really? this is, yeah this is one of the things that we're gonna have to look at so basically newcastle Crazy. He, yeah, yeah yeah so yeah, he's uh, he's i've put him down as thomas pelham hollers but um so he comes back in uh, 57 and he stays until 62 so um okay. yeah yeah, yeah. So maybe we can maybe we can do both of his terms together. Um, and w there's William Cavendish comes in between uh, for one year. So maybe we can do 1754 to 1762 and we'll cover all th the um, uh, Newcastle twice and Cavendish once. And uh, yeah. yeah. OK, Sweet. Right. cool. Yeah. But, uh, we'll, we'll go with the one that you said first. So for the next time. Cool. Um, Aidan, thank you very much. It's uh, it's a pleasure as always. Um, and yeah, I, I look forward to every future show that we have. Agreed. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on here again, and I'm looking forward to doing my research on our next topic. I'm stoked. Two and a mic.